Before we start today's show, we just wanted to share some exciting news with you all. We've launched our own Patreon page. Your donations will help with costs of producing and bringing you a show with better content such as on-site visits to prisons, prison phone calls, interviews, and much, much more. For only $6, you get a pros and cons sticker and pin, a Patreon-exclusive episode every month. This could be a Q&A, interview with a special guest, update to a previous case, and a shout-out on our social media and your name added to our website as a contributor. It also includes access to our private Slack group where you can get behind-the-scenes updates like upcoming episodes, inmate artwork sent to Bethany, and then you can just chat with us and other listeners. Head on over to www.patreon.com backslash mouthoffnetwork and select the pros and cons tier to become a patron today. This week on the pros and cons, a young woman goes missing on her way home, and the next morning a pool of blood is found. Police are at a loss until it happens again. We're the pros and cons to true crime television producers, Bethany Jones, that's me, and Adriana Padilla. Hello. With each episode, we talk to the pros that lived and worked the cases and about the cons that made the headlines. The Pros and Cons podcast is available on the most popular and accessible podcast platforms, including TuneIn, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and many others. We also really love it when you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. It not only helps other true crime fans find us, it helps us improve and helps us know what you guys like. And just stay in touch. I, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if you've already rated, reviewed, and subscribed, encourage a friend to do that. And if you want to find out what we're up to or get a deep dive into the true crime news of the week... You can uh, follow us at Facebook and Instagram at the Pros and Cons Podcast, on Facebook at the Pros and Cons Podcast official group. Uh, We post daily about our show and any true crime news you might have missed. And we're also on Twitter at the Pros and Cons Show. So come be social. You can also email us at the Pros and Cons Podcast at gmail.com. And, you know... We we're back together. We took a nice lengthy Yeah, we took a long break. kind of break. Uh, for the holidays. We did. There's it's it's been busy. There's been a lot of things happening, but it's nice to be back in the studio. It is. We both are on different true crime shows, which are taking a lot of 
time and attention and I have broken every single one of my New Year's resolutions so far. How I about you? I just don't make any. So <laughs> and it's <laughs> Valentine's Day. <laughs> um well, I'm really excited and I know that people have been really enjoying um Abducted in Plain Sight, the Ted Bundy tapes. So tell us what you've been watching. Have you seen anything interesting, Adriana? Well, I do want to plug a, a Netflix um, special that just came out that I was a producer on called Massacre in Stadium. It's part of the remastered series on mm -hmm. Netflix. And um, it tells the story of the murder of folk singer Victor Jara, who was the Bob Dylan of Chile. Kind of, it's a part of history I think not a lot of people talk about. And it's also a murder mystery because we are trying to find the man um, who is responsible for his death. Well, it's a fascinating series at large. I mean, beyond that one, they have one on Sam Cooke and a lot of other notable singers. So Yeah, they have one on um, Bob Marley. But of course, I, I have a special place in my heart for my own. Yes. I feel like it's really great. And um, I think the heart of the show is um, Joan Hara who is his wife. She's 94 years old. Oh, wow. And she is seeking justice for her husband. So, yeah. The, the arc of justice may be long, but it's... What was it Justin Brooks told us? The arc of justice may be long, but it doesn't tire? Yeah. So I will she, text him and ask. She, she's, so she keeps on, you know, she keeps working. On keeping and she's made it her life work. So it's a really interesting show, and I hope you guys watch it and then meanwhile a lot has been happening in in true crime news there has yeah i think um one is centoya brown which by now is old news but yes still you know amazing and and well deserved yeah and um you actually worked with dan the director of her yeah, documentary yeah on um and we know some of those producers maybe we'll have them on yeah who knows like i really feel like now that they're talking about her case and now that you know she's not worried about appeals and more people from her family will be willing to talk hopefully and then also like jose bias who um yes. represented um casey anthony and aaron hernandez that i worked on a show about aaron hernandez um he ended up he's representing harvey weinstein which I find like oh, amazing. A, a amazing. So that's been something that's been amusing me, kind of semi depressing. But how yeah. did you two meet? Oh, the seventh layer of hell, darling. Let's <laughs> see. <laughs> well, tell us about today's case. Yes, I'm talking about the seventh layer of hell. Um, so today's case is one I did for a show that aired last year. And even though it happened about a decade ago, there are still aspects of it that I find completely frightening. Mm. And it's the case of Rachel Newhouse and Andrea Crawford. This case takes place in San Luis Obispo, California in 1999. Now, for those who don't know California, San Luis Obispo, or SLO for short, is a California city located right smack in between Los Angeles and San Francisco. It's a place known for its wine, its beaches, and it's also a college town. 
Also, my dad lived there for a while, and I've been to the prison there. <laughs> <laughs> and it has a prison in Bethany's dad. <laughs> my dad is not in the prison, nor has he ever been incarcerated. It was kind of a twofer for me. I got to go wine tasting, visit my dad, go to the prison. <laughs> it's like Bethany's perfect vacation. <laughs> so the city is also home to California Polytechnic State University, or Cal Poly, in 1999, Rachel Newhouse was a 21-year-old co-ed at Cal Poly and in her junior year. Rachel was the middle child of a tight-knit family from Orange County, California. So she went far enough, but not too far from home. Far enough that your parents won't knock on your door and far enough that you can come home for a weekend. Yeah, so it was the perfect thing because they were very close. Five hours, six hours away. Yeah. yeah. So Rachel was a typical California surfer girl with long blonde hair. You know, she was studying to be a nutritionist. She was pursuing her dream, and Cal Poly was her dream college. Then everything changed the night of November 12th, 1999. That night, Rachel went to downtown Slow to party at the nearby bar, Tortilla Flats. What happened next isn't exactly certain. There are a couple different stories. What I heard is that mm. Rachel had gone out with a friend. The friend was underaged, so Rachel was able to get in the bar area of Tortilla Flats because she was of age, but her friend was stuck in the restaurant portion, which was for, you know, families and and so underage people. And Rachel's friend became incredibly angry for being left out, and the two women got into an argument. Rachel was upset by her friend's anger and left the bar alone. Oh. So no one was really certain exactly when Rachel left or what direction she went. And the next morning, Rachel's roommates noticed that she hadn't gotten home, but they figured she might have stayed at someone else's house. But when Rachel missed her shift at work and then still wasn't home the next night, her roommates knew something was very wrong and they called 911. In many cases like this one, police often don't immediately suspect foul play. Even though Rachel wasn't a troublemaker or the type of person who would run away, yeah. you know, there's always the possibility that she just didn't want to be found or was cooling off somewhere. But the case of Rachel Newhouse was different. Unbeknownst to her roommates, around the same time Rachel went missing, police found a pool of blood on the streets of San Luis Obispo. The blood had been found by a jogger that morning on Jennifer Street Bridge. Side note, <laughs> for those of you who don't know me, this is exactly why I don't jog. Um, joggers are always finding the worst stuff. If it's not a jogger, it's a hiker. You know, if you want to find a body, take up jogging. Yeah, physical fitness is the way to run into murder. <laughs> Although I do have a friend that's uh, forced me to join the gym. And so I'm okay with the treadmill. Because yeah, you will never find a dead body on a treadmill. You'll find my dead body on the <laughs> treadmill. Um, the Jennifer Street Bridge connects one side of San Luis Obispo to the other side. Um, and it's a really unique looking metal structure. 
Yeah, it made it really hard to do a reenactments because we just couldn't find a bridge like it. It's kind of like a Eiffel Tower looking kind of style. So it is very unique. Yeah. yeah. Um, at first, the blood that had been found by the jogger was assumed to be animal blood. Uh, so it was not reported immediately to the police. Um, Cal Poly, actually, I don't know if you know this, Adriana. It has one of the best um, veterinarian programs and animal programs in the country. Oh, so. So that kind of made sense. Once p- police discovered Rachel was missing, they took a look at Jennifer Street Bridge a little more closely. The blood had made a substantial pool about 8 to 12 inches in diameter. So that's sizable. That's, you know, if an animal had been injured, you know, it would have been pretty gravely injured. And obviously the same would be for a a A person. Yeah. Yeah. And police found the pool was connected to a trail of blood leading from the top of the bridge, downstairs on the edge of the bridge, and then stopping at a parking lot below. This usually indicates that the victim was removed from the scene in a car and things were starting to not look very good or hopeful for Rachel Newhouse. The blood they collected was sent to a forensics lab for testing and it was determined to be Rachel's DNA. So now detectives knew that Rachel was at least hurt, if not worse off. Right away, there was a big push in the community to find Rachel. And just so people know, in the community, there's, um, they're very tight knit, you know, the people who live there, um, that yes, it is a college town, but the people that live there are very caring, you know, they're very committed to the community. They're, it uh, has a small town vibe to it. Absolutely. And to this day, there's a missing girl and her poster's still up around town. So there is this kind of sense of, you know, togetherness there. Um, So, you know, there's this big push in the community to find Rachel and the police were interviewing dozens of possible witnesses. Flyers with Rachel's face were plastered all over the campus and city. Um, Search and rescue teams combed the nearby areas and, you know, in those areas, there's hills, there's farms, there's vineyards. It's... There's Not, a lot of places to, to look. Yeah, there, it's quite rural. Um, idyllic, but rural. Um, and then, you know, as happens with cases like this, days turn into weeks and weeks turn into months and there is still no sign of Rachel. The holidays came and the students went home to their families and Rachel Newhouse was not one of them. Five months passed. As police become Frustrated by the lack of progress, the unthinkable happens. Another girl goes missing. Twenty-year-old Andrea Crawford was a student at nearby Cuesta College. Like Rachel, she was a pretty and blonde California girl. Andrea was very close to her mother and would talk to her multiple times a day. But on March 13th, Andrea didn't pick up the phone when her mother called. Her mother called several times, but still there was no answer. After a full day trying to reach her daughter, Andrea's mother was frantic. She called San Luis Obispo PD to do a wellness check on her daughter. Police let themselves into Andrea's apartment. 
Not only did they discover that Andrea was missing, but they also uncovered evidence of a violent altercation. There are bloodstains on the foyer of the apartment. Andrea's bed also had bloodstains and a pillowcase was missing. But police still didn't see any indication of a break-in until they looked at Andrea's bathroom. There was a tiny window over Andrea's shower that was open, and the tub below had dirt and shoe impressions. Oh, that's petrifying. Yeah. Investigators were sure that whoever took Andrea came in from that window. Andrea's mom theorized that she might have left the window open for her cat, who had been sick at that time and was living in the bathroom. And just an aside, this window was very, very small and very high up the wall, kind of one of those typical... Um, like a postage stamp. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know exactly, because I had one at, in my college dorm, and now I'm thinking of all the times I left it open. And so it's so small, you can't imagine that anyone could, could get in. in. Yeah, so it, it's something you could see yourself leaving open. It wasn't like a giant, you know... Yeah, it's not like you left the front door open with yeah. a welcome sign. Now, there were a couple unusual things about the crime scene. One... Andrea's car was left behind, so how was she transported? Two, though her car was still there, Andrea's car keys were missing. Andrea had this eight ball keychain that she really liked, and it was attached to her keys. And the thought was, could the keychain have been taken as a trophy? Could it lead to the killer? San Luis Obispo was seen and remains to be seen to this day as a very safe place. It's an area with a very low crime rate. And for two girls to go missing in a short time frame, the city went crazy with fear. Police were sure that Andrea was most likely still alive when she was taken from her home. But they had no idea if she was still among the living. They suspected, but were unsure if Andrea's case was connected or had anything to do with Rachel's. One thing supporting this theory was that both girls were strikingly similar in looks. They were both in their early 20s, both about the same height, weight, and had long blonde hair. It seemed like if there was a killer out there, then he had a type. And there were a lot of girls in San Luis Obispo that fit this uh, description. Coeds started to form safety teams, so they would walk together in groups There were tons of searches done of the area. Investigators interviewed countless friends and family members. They even looked for a while at Andrea's boyfriend and police had him take a lie detector test. So was he considered a prime suspect at this point or was he just a person of interest or? He was a person of interest. Um... Just as they were interviewing all the witnesses and yes. people in town. Okay. He, it was interesting because we um, interviewed him for the show, but we didn't use him because he was a little creepy. <laughs> <laughs> so I can kind of see, I was like, oh boy, this is why they thought you murdered. Yeah. But no, he was completely innocent. Okay. Yeah. But the police were able to eliminate him as a suspect. And soon the detectives found themselves in the same situation they had with Rachel. No leads. And no idea where Andrea could have disappeared too. But just when hope seemed lost, they got a lead from a very unlikely place. 
Five days after Andrea disappeared, a parole officer, David Zaragoza, was doing his morning routine of stationary bike and reading the newspaper. Now, Zaragoza isn't your typical guy. In fact, he's probably one of the most interesting people I've ever learned about. First, Mm. he monitors the most violent ex-cons in his region, about 95 to 110 parolees at any given time. That's a substantial amount of parolees to be overseeing. And second, this guy had an almost photographic memory. So he had this database of past and present offenders under his care. And third, he took his job super seriously. So when he was reading the paper on his stationary bicycle, he was not just looking at the news. He was reading, thinking, hmm, are any of my parolees up to no good? Are they being reported on? So he would do this every day. This was his ritual, looking, seeing, and analyzing to see whether or not any of his guys... Trying to see if there's connective Mm -hmm. tissue with their past crimes and their present life. Mm -hmm. He's a smart one. So that morning, Zaragoza was reading about the circumstances of Andrea's abduction, and he started thinking if any parolees under his care had a similar M.O. And as he mentally went through his list, he stopped at the memory of one ex-con currently under his care. Oh. This criminal was a serial rapist who had broken into one of his victims' residences in 1987 through a small bathroom window. The parolee was also small enough to fit through Andrea's window. Following his hunch, Zaragoza went to his office and reviewed the file of his parolee, Rex Krebs. Rex Krebs had served time for rape and attempted rape in 1987. Type of victim, early 20s, college-aged females. Since serving his time and paying his debt back to society, Krebs had turned his life around. As a lot of inmates can do, they can be reformed and rehabilitated. And uh, he had moved to San Luis Obispo, got a job at a local business, 84 Lumber, and was even employee of the month. But Zaragoza couldn't shake the feeling that Krebs had returned to his old habits. So he decided to pay a visit to his parolee, Rex Krebs. Since he was a sex offender, Rex wasn't allowed in most neighborhoods and lived in an isolated part of the city called Davis Canyon. Just so, just a little side note there for our listeners, if you are a registered sex offender. Um, oftentimes you're not allowed near beaches in case there are children there. Um, you know, depending on the crime, sometimes you'll wear an ankle bracelet for an extended period of time. And, um, and usually not schools or parks. So yeah, so it limited where you can live. Yeah. So um, it definitely, uh, it definitely can be prohibitive, which obviously we're not opposing. We're just stating stating the facts. The facts. Um, he was living off the grid without electricity off of a country road. Zaragoza went to visit Rex Krebs six days after Andreas disappeared, and what he saw surprised him. Rex Krebs came out to greet him in his driveway, and he was wearing a back brace. 
According to Krebs, he had been injured by falling off a wall and into a pile of firewood. But Zaragoza noticed that he didn't have any abrasions on his hands or his arms, which you would imagine would happen if someone had fallen and fallen into a pile of firewood. To Zaragoza, Rex Krebs' injuries looked like ones you might get trying to squeeze through a tiny bathroom window. So Zaragoza, kind of funny story, actually had firsthand knowledge about these type of injuries because when he was a kid, he told us he would sometimes forget his key and use the bathroom window to break back into his own house. I mean, I used to use a cat door. Well, I didn't use it. We would yeah. send my little brother through. But every time he would break into his own house, little Zaragoza would, you know, do this, injure his ribs. Yeah. So bruise, he thought, yeah. So he thought, hmm, I, I kind of, I've seen this injury before in myself. So Zaragoza was certain that Krebs was uh, up to something. And as soon as he left Krebs' house, he made a beeline to the San Luis Obispo Police Department. And he told the police, you need to look at this guy. You need to look at Rex Krebs. Because of his reputation, San Luis Obispo Police took Zaragoza's tip very seriously. And the next day, they went with Zaragoza to visit Rex Krebs at his job at 84 Lumber. They did a sweeping search of the lumber yard, and what they found instantly landed Krebs in hot water. Police found a 22 caliber pellet pistol that Rex Krebs said he was using on birds in the lumber yard. But one of the conditions of his parole was that he not be in possession of any firearm or replica firearm. So he was arrested for a parole violation. Ooh. Mm -hmm. It was busted. So with Rex Krebs behind bars, San Luis Obispo PD was able to search his house and his vehicles for evidence, and they did not come away empty-handed. During the search, police found a small wooden box hidden in a kitchen drawer. The box contained 15 84 lumberyard receipts, all from female customers. The women's addresses were listed on the receipts. Oh, no. Police thought. Maybe this could be his stash of future victims. Looking more closely in the box, police found another thing that made their blood run cold. There was a tiny eight ball keychain inside without keys, just like the one taken from Andrea Crawford. Outside Rex Krebs' house, officers were finding even more evidence. Looking at Rex Krebs' Ford pickup, Investigators noticed that the jump seat behind the passenger seat was missing. They were able to locate the missing seat hidden underneath Rex Krebs' house. Well, the leather jump seat appeared to be cleaned off, but it was possible the DNA remained. So the investigators packed up the seat and sent it off to a forensic lab in Fresno to do analysis. And just as an aside, DNA testing is not like the movies where it happens almost instantly. It can take weeks or even months to get DNA yep. results, especially <clears throat> in 1999 when it was still a new technology. And, you know, some places even have a backlog that goes back years. And so police had some time to wait for these results. 
And the investigators were also in a precarious position because they had no idea where these two young women were or if they were alive or dead. The only person who knew the truth was Rex Krebs. And if he didn't open up and talk about the girls, they might be lost forever. While police waited for the results of the DNA test, they had Rex Krebs as a captive audience. It was time to find out what he knew. Sometimes things happen for a reason, and in this case, Rex Krebs found himself sitting across from Larry Hobson, one of the best interviewers and polygraph examiners in the state. Back when we were the queens of crime, we interviewed Phil Waters, who is another police interviewer. And, you know, he talked about building a rapport and a relationship with the suspects, and I know Bobby Chacon has talked about that with us, as well as Joe Navarro, who is uh, an expert, body language expert. So it's all about kind of building these relationships. relationships. And I found actually, you know, I know I haven't talked to you about it in great detail. That's honestly how I get a lot of my interviews with the inmates. It's building this kind of relationship. And one of them agreed to interview me after having turned down 48 Hours, Dateline, CNN, eight, so nine other shows because I told what my favorite pizza was. It was like not a big thing to share, but to them it was. So Yeah, you have to make that human connection. You it's do. It's not about beating up people or saying, what do you know? And yelling them at them across the table. Much to my chagrin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so, so, you know. It is. Um, you want to make people feel safe. Um, and Larry Hobson was a... 30-year law enforcement veteran working for the district attorney's office. He was no stranger to interviewing violent criminals. He had once elicited a confession from Richard Benson, who notoriously murdered a woman and her three children in 1986. Hobson visited Krebs roughly a dozen times before ever pointing questions toward him as a suspect. Larry Hobson would bring cigarettes, and he'd talk to Rex under the guise that Rex was helping him find the real murderer. Hobson told Krebs he wanted to use his experience as an offender to help solve the case, and he told Krebs he could be very helpful to the investigation based on his prior experience with sex crimes, so kind of playing into his ego and, Mm -hmm. you know. His need to feel helpful. Yeah, it's... Like a lobster technique, you know, where you get the cold water, you put the lobster in and then slowly boil it. That's gruesome. But yes, it was very much that way. Is that how you was, cook lobsters? I, I don't know. I'd rather not think about it. But it's true. It's <laughs> kind of like got him comfortable and, yeah. and turning up the heat. And then you turn up the heat. And for weeks, Rex gave Larry Hobson, air quotation marks, help. <laughs> He gave the detective names of possible suspects. Police took those names and they did look at them, but they never became a suspect like Rex Krebs was. Hobson also started asking Krebs personal details. According to Krebs, he had been abused by his father and his mother, who had known about the abuse, never did anything to try to save him. For whatever reason, his mother's inability or unwillingness to protect him was even more hurtful to him than his father's own beatings and physical abuse. 
Krebs told Hobson it created a hatred in women that led to his desire to hurt women. I had to watch the interrogation of him as he was talking about why he became the person he became. Okay. And so pretty much Hobson asked him, like, why do you hurt women? And he just says one word. He says, mama. Oh. And it was so creepy. Oh, it, oh Yeah, it man. didn't make it into the show, but it still haunts me. Because oh. he's like, mama. Oh, that yeah. Chills. Yeah. It was... That just chilled my bones. I'm not going to sleep tonight. Yeah. That that whole, he just said mama. And I was like, oh my God. That whole interrogation is very disturbing. Um, After weeks of questioning, it was almost as if Hobson was his therapist. And Krebs wanted to tell him everything. Except where Andrea and Rachel could be. On April 21st, 1999, Larry Hobson went to interview Rex Krebs. But this time... He had a secret. Just hours before meeting with Krebs one more time, the DNA evidence from the jump seat had come in. With this new information, Hobson sat down next to Krebs and confronts him about the results. Hobson brought in the eight ball keychain that was found at Rex Krebs' home. He told Krebs that this eight ball belonged to Andrea. Hobson then tells Rex that they found another piece of evidence, the jump seat. And then throughout this interrogation or this portion, uh-huh. you can see him because he usually was very confident and very open. And suddenly you can see him like curl into a ball as he oh, confronts him with each piece of evidence. Furling up. Oh, my goodness. Now that he had Krebs undivided attention, Hobson told Krebs that the jump seat had been sent to a lab in Fresno. And what do you think that they had found? Rachel Newhouse's blood. And at this point, Rex Krebs was in a fetal position, but Hobson pushed on. He asked Krebs to tell him the truth. Were Rachel Newhouse and Andrea Crawford still alive? Hobson point blank asked Krebs if he was responsible for the disappearance of both girls, were they going to find either girl alive? Rex Krebs just shook his head. No. The revelation was a giant blow to the investigative team. At that point, Larry Hobson's only goal was to find out what had happened to Rachel and Andrea. According to Krebs, Rachel's death had been a crime of opportunity. He saw her walking home by herself and stalked her for several blocks. When he saw she was headed toward the Jennifer Street Bridge, he parked his car at the base of the bridge and put on a scream mask and then headed to the top of the stairs. Like scream from the movie? Like scream from the movie. Oh. Yeah. With this horror mask on, Krebs attacked Rachel and pulled her bleeding into his truck. He then took her into his cabin where he assaulted her and tied her up. The next morning, he found Rachel dead. Now, we're not really certain what happened in that moment. Right, um, okay. Because, you know, someone who's a murderer could also be a liar. He claims that he had tied Rachel up in a way where she self-asphyxiated so he didn't kill her. 
but there's no way of knowing what he if did you to tie her. someone up you're doing it to cause harm unless it's a consensual thing sexually which no judgment but that's just him trying to wriggle out as far as yeah. i'm concerned and that's just my personal opinion that's not but fact or that's the story that he told police right but either way he caused her her death yeah and he, he buried her in a hillside next to his home now with andrea he had been stalking her for days when he saw the window open in her apartment so he'd escalated yes from seeing someone on the street to seeing someone and making a plan of attack well he had already been uh identified her well he had already gone to jail for you know stalking right. raping another woman so this was yeah. his mo yeah um so he had creeped into her house and attacked her when she came in the bathroom to check the noise he had made. Mm. Krebs abducted Andrea in his truck and took her to his cabin where she was also assaulted. Later that night, Andrea attempted to escape. And according to Krebs, it was at that moment he killed her with his own bare hands. He buried Andrea in his own backyard. After Krebs confessed, perhaps due to the relationship he had with Larry Hobson, Krebs took the police to the girls' graves and they were able to return to their families. That's awful. Yeah. So for his crimes, Rex Krebs was sentenced to death and he is currently on death row in San Quentin. Okay. Okay. And it's a bummer story, but there is um, a really interesting story that wasn't able to make it to air okay and that's the story it. of rachel newhouse's little sister ashley and it it's not a entirely happy story after rachel died um ashley's life was torn apart rachel was her best friend yeah. rachel was her hero you know they had a very close sister relationship so the death of her sister tore apart their family. You know, they're yeah. just this family from Irvine. This doesn't happen. She said it herself. This doesn't happen yeah. to families like my family. Yeah. And so after that, she kind of spiraled out of control. Of course. With her grief and went into drug addiction, ended up homeless, oh. spent almost a decade trying to find herself. And um, finally, she had this um, reawakening of her faith yeah. and um, just made peace with God and became this really positive person and turned her life around. And one of the first things that she wanted to do was to write to Rex Krebs. No way. And it was kind of interesting because she ended up having this kind of pen pal relationship with him yeah. and ultimately forgave him for yeah. the crime. And in some ways, you know, started kind of understand that his trauma and her trauma yeah. and are linked. were linked and many of the bad things she did and many of the bad things he did. So, you know, not everyone will agree with it and it's not for everyone. I know that yeah. Andrea Crawford's mother is very angry still. Of and course. And she has every she's right like, to be. 
she's like, I'm the first one to pull the switch when it's time for this guy. But it's just was interesting to see how she had dealt with her grief. She had come around and then she had chosen forgiveness in this story, even though something so terrible had happened to her sister. That's, you know, I love that so much because I've had that with some of the interviews with my mates. They've turned corners. Not everyone can, not everyone will. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Rex Krebs certainly isn't suitable for release into society. You know, he's, no, he's an set apex to, predator, you know? And he's set to pay for his crimes with his life. Yeah. And, but that doesn't eliminate the fact that, you know, Ashley Newhouse felt that she could explore the avenue of forgiveness and that looks different for everyone, you yeah. know. But that's really moving and powerful. Thank you yeah. for sharing that. And yeah, it, it was something like, you know, you can't really explore in like, you know, an hour of television. But it's a story that I feel like was um, very thank, moving. Well, thank you for sharing that story. It was very um, moving and powerful. And, you know, I this case was really interesting actually yeah you're welcome thank you um i always love hearing about things you've worked on that we haven't worked on collectively because you know it's like what have you been up to yeah yeah (laughs) in between (laughs) in between us having brunch what have you been doing with your life exactly so um well and thank you so much to everyone for tuning in again to the pros and cons you can get in touch with us in several ways. You can email us at the pros and cons podcast at gmail.com. You can follow us at pros and cons show on Twitter and at the pros and cons podcast on both Instagram and Facebook. Um, and while you're on Instagram and while you're on Facebook, please feel free to post in the official Facebook group, memes, pictures of your pets, you know, articles whatever it is that your heart desires and on instagram things you're interested in anything and everything on instagram tag us we love seeing you on your stories when you listen to us on road trips or if you're with your pets we we really like the pet photos guys so (laughs) um um or makeup photos if you're getting you know getting ready for a night out and listening to us And please also remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts and or your favorite Android app. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.